imprisoned for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as we were called in one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Let's uh, start with a word of prayer. I just want to read another scripture to frame our prayer. Jesus told us, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you warned us that these would be the conditions of the time between your ascension and between your return, that these things would continue on, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes in various places, that this is not the end. This isn't the end of time. This isn't your return. These are the birth pains. This is the earth leading up to that time when you do return. And so, Lord, this morning as we hear from the, this weekend, the news from this weekend of a huge repeated earthquake in Afghanistan, killing thousands. Lord, that's not, not something new. That's not a sign of, of your imminent return. It is a painful reminder that this time between now and when you come, this is what it's going to be like. And so, Lord, we pray for those victims, uh, for their families, for the people who have been displaced in Afghanistan. Father, for their, their government, the Taliban, not wanting to let certain people in because of their strict religious beliefs. And Lord, it's only harming the relief efforts. So Lord, would you have mercy in that nation? And I pray that somehow in the midst of all of this, your church would rise in that moment and be a beacon of hope as the rebuilding tries to happen, as they're still rescuing people. Lord, somehow in that, in that tragedy, would the name of Christ be exalted? And Lord, you know what that looks like. You know how that can happen, and you know how to make that happen. So Lord, we trust that. We commit that to your hands. But have mercy on that wayward nation, that nation that has turned. That I don't know if they've ever turned to you, but they are far from you. Lord, would you begin to use these disasters, these tragedies that they've suffered for millennia to spark revival and bring the gospel to them? Have mercy, we pray. Lord, having heard the alarming news yesterday of the Hamas incursion into uh, Israel and, and the, the damage, the, the barbarism that's taken place. Uh, Lord, it, it just is heartrending to think that human beings can be so horrible to human beings. And so, Lord, I pray for uh, the situation there, for those families who are wondering, were their, were their family members kidnapped? Have they been killed? What's going on? Uh, Lord, would you bring them hope and help, uh, Lord Jesus, in your name? somehow in some some way in that midst of that and lord as israel now gears up to retaliate um, I, I fear that's not going to be calm cool and measured it's going to be a, a strong and a, and a, a devastating re, re, uh, um, attack a, a retribution and lord this is the powder keg of the world the middle east is still 
a hotbed. And so, Lord, we know that there would be wars and rumors of wars. And so, Lord Jesus, um, as this is going on, we pray again, would you somehow redeem it? Would you show in the midst of human evil and human wickedness and and the, the tragedy of war, that there is the mercy of God in the midst of these things somehow. Lord, we, we can't imagine what that will look like, but Lord, you have done amazing things throughout the history of this world, and you can do it again. So Lord, as we, as we head into these times, as we head into this difficult place in world, the world stage, Lord, I want to pray for our government, for our government leaders, for the president, for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, for the security advisors, for our Congress, Lord, I pray that you would grant them extraordinary wisdom, something well beyond what they're capable of, what they've ever experienced. Lord, restraint where restraint is appropriate and action where action is appropriate and and help our leaders respond well. And Lord, our nation is fractured, fragmented. We have different opinions. Social media is flooded with everything, every possible take on this situation. Lord, I pray that you might tap that down and, and give us a sense of purpose. Um, I've heard this described as Israel's 9-11. And in 9-11, we saw the world kind of settle down for a moment and and largely rally together to put down a a horrible evil. Lord, may that happen again. May we see some glimmer of revival, some glimmer of hope in America as we settle our our disputes, our, our difference of opinions, and focus on an enemy that is extraordinarily dangerous. Have mercy, Lord. And Jesus, in all of that, in all of those things, there is, we see in your word, there's the Jew, there is the Gentile. And then in between those, there is something you call your church. And so, Lord, as we struggle to be your church in this world, in this time, hearing of wars and rumors of wars, of, of false messiahs leading many astray, Lord, I pray for, our, for your church that we would be unified, that we would be focused on who you are and what you're doing that uh, that would be the main part of what we are all about. And so, Lord, to that end, would you bless the preaching of your word this morning? Help us to hear and to understand and to sense that common purpose, that common place we have, because you are the Lord of the church. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're doing 1 Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians we said, since you asked, and that the idea that is, Paul is answering different questions that that come up in in Corinth. And this first one was he heard from Chloe's people that there's division in the church. You heard from Ephesians this morning, there should not be division in the church. There shouldn't be like that. And so what Paul responds with is he he, kind of rebukes them for saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and instead wants them to come back to who who we're united in. And so what he says uh, in the previous section, in verse 9, he said, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's that sense of unity. One of the ways that people were divided was not just saying, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos, but apparently there was something about their baptism that they thought was different. And so Paul says, I'm grateful I didn't baptize many of you. I baptized a couple and that's it. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here to preach the gospel. And so last week we looked at how, the, how baptism should be a, a source of unity for us, but we really struggle. Well, I'm going to just keep picking at that scab today. <laughs> what we're going to talk about today is what is baptism. And, and when you ask that question, what is baptism, when you look at all the different strains, all the different types of, of Christianity, we all practice baptism of some sort. We all believe that we should baptize people in the church. 
we all use water in our baptism to some degree. Um, and the Orthodox ones, the ones that are legitimately Orthodox, all follow that same Trinitarian formula. Jesus said, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we do have baptism as a central thing that unites us. And that's about where the unity ends, is in those three things. So what we're going to look at this morning is, is some different views on baptism and kind of critique each one. I'm not saying that they're you know, damnable heresies or anything like that, but we have a different take on them. These different groups have different takes. What we want to do is measure it against the scriptures. And so we'll go through these different takes on what, uh, what, um, how they approach baptism. And then in the end, I want to back up and say, now, what does the scripture say about this and how does this fit together? So I'm going to critique at the beginning, but I'm not damning. And in the end, I want to come back and say, and here's where they can kind of get this. This is not a bad thing. So the first version, the first kind of approach to baptism is something called baptismal regeneration. And the idea of baptismal regeneration is that in baptism, when somebody is baptized, that does a number of things. It, it, it washes them clean. It is a renewal of the heart. So they, they're baptized and they are regenerate. That's how they become regenerate. They're sealed. The Holy Spirit comes upon them at that point. And so they're, 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 in this, uh, they're placed in, um, in Jesus in that way. They're, they're, they are baptized, they're regenerate, they're made part of the church. They receive the benefits of being regenerate. They're, they're saved, they're, they're sanctified, they're growing in Christ, that kind of thing. And it starts at baptism. That's the approach. Baptism is necessary, it's required to be saved, because that's the moment of your salvation, essentially. Um, so... What is, what's challenging about this? Or where, where would they get this, rather? I'm sorry, let's start there. Where would they get these ideas? Well, there's a handful of scriptures. So, for example, in Acts chapter 9, Paul is converted, right? Paul goes to Damascus, and he, he uh, meets Christ on the road. He's blinded, and he goes into the city. Um, and a man named Ananias comes to him. Now, when Paul retells that story at the end of uh, Acts, at, at Acts chapter 22, here's what he says Ananias told him. Ananias said, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So the idea there is baptism washes away sins. So these people who hold to, uh, those who hold to uh, baptismal regeneration think that a baptism removes sin, including original sin. And what original sin is, is not like the first time you sinned, it is the sin of Adam. And so they think that that washing away of sin, that's why you would baptize somebody. Um, another verse that they appeal to that is pretty strong, I think, it's a pretty good one, is 1 Peter chapter 3. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Paul himself, or Peter himself said, you, you have to be baptized because baptism saves you. Um, Titus 3.5, this is another one they appeal to, says that he saved us, not because of works we've done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration. Baptism creates regeneration. That's what that washing is. That's how they approach that. And then the last one to mention is Acts chapter 2. Peter is, is preached a great message. The people say, we are cut to the heart. What must we do to be saved? They're, they're convicted about what happened to Jesus and their role in it. And so Peter's answer to them is, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So these are the verses that they usually appeal to to support the idea of baptismal regeneration. Washing away of sins, the washing of regeneration. 
Um, there's a, a number of different groups, Protestant, uh, like uh, uh, Lutheran, and a couple others. There's the Orthodox Church believes in this. The Roman Catholic Church believes in this. So this is the idea that when you baptize somebody, they're regenerated. They're, they're, they have the gift of the Holy Spirit. They have all of these things given to them. What's wrong with this approach? How does, why? I mean, those are some pretty good scriptures, I thought. Why does that not work? Why doesn't that fit? Well, because one of the problems is when we look through the book of Acts specifically, the Holy Spirit doesn't always come at baptism. He's not always tied to baptism. Um, so, for example, uh, Acts 19, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. They're disciples of Jesus. He found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Not did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. So these are disciples, but they're imperfect disciples. And they didn't appeal, Paul didn't point them to their baptism and say, when you're baptized, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Come on, guys, don't you know this? So there's a, a verse that doesn't fit. Another example is Cornelius the first Gentile convert to Christianity that we meet in, in Acts. Um, well, not, yeah, I guess he's the first. We'll call him the first. So he's, he's, he's a, a, a Roman centurion, and he has a dream. An angel comes to him and says, send for Peter, bring him here. He's got a message for you. So that happens. Peter comes to Cornelius's house, and Peter starts preaching the gospel. And here's what happens in Acts chapter 10. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who were with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So here's an example of the Holy Spirit preceding baptism. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and he came upon them in a very public, a very noticeable way. They're, they're praising God. They're speaking in tongues. And then Peter's response is, okay, the Holy Spirit's come. We've got to baptize these folks. We can't not. So that kind of goes against that idea that baptism imparts the Holy Spirit, baptizes, imparts uh, regeneration. Um, so that was before baptism that the Holy Spirit came. There's another example of the Holy Spirit showing up after baptism. So this is backing up to chapter 8. In, in Acts chapter 8, what happened was there was a persecution arose in Jerusalem, and the disciples were scattered. They moved out from Jerusalem. The 12 apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but everybody else left. And Philip winds up in Samaria. And so this is what happens there in Acts chapter 8. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So what happened was Philip had preached the gospel in Samaria, and a bunch of people believed, but they didn't receive the Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on them, but they had only been baptized in the name of, Jesus, uh, of the Lord Jesus. And they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So baptismal regeneration didn't work in this case. They were baptized, but when it says only in Jesus' name, what that means is they had received water baptism, but they hadn't received the spirit baptism. So it's only in Jesus' name. So that's why the apostles come down and they lay hands on them. So we've got an example of 
the Spirit coming before baptism and the Spirit coming well after baptism. So I don't think baptismal regeneration really fits those kind of pictures. Um, then the last one, this one always gets a fight. People always, I, I was, uh, I've seen on Twitter where people argue about this one. There's the thief on the cross. Jesus is crucified between two thieves. One of them is railing against him and the other turns and he says, how can, you can't say this stuff. Here's, here's how it goes. Let me just read the, the verse. For one of the criminals who hanged rallied at, or railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since we, you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. They did not pry him off the cross and baptize him. Jesus promised him salvation at that point. So again, I don't think the baptismal regeneration, saying that, that when we baptize somebody, it imparts the spirit, it renews their heart, it gives them justification, sanctification, all of those things. I don't think it fits the biblical picture. It, it just doesn't quite line up. So what about that part about washing away of sins? We'll come back to that. We'll get to that when we talk about what I think is a better model, a better approach to it. The next approach, another approach that some people say is they say that the baptism is the sign and seal of the new covenant. That, that it doesn't save anybody, it doesn't regenerate anybody, but it puts them into the covenant. So the idea here is when Abraham, when God made a covenant with Abraham, he gave him circumcision. He said, circumcise your household. That was a sign of his covenant. That happened again with Moses. Moses reinforced circumcision. But in the Mosaic covenant, it was the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant. It's how you know you're in the covenant. This is what you have to do to be in the covenant. So the folks who believe that, the, that baptism is a sign and seal of the new covenant say the new covenant has a sign and seal. And what it is is it used to be circumcision and now it's baptism. Where do they get that idea? Well, one of the places is Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians 2, it says, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So there you have circumcision tied to baptism. So there, there's a connection. The other place that, that they tend to go is uh, Acts chapter 2 again. We're going to come back to this a couple of times. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord will call. So the promise is to you and your children. Just like circumcision was for you and your children, the promise is for you and your children. And so that's the approach. That's, that's the idea that we baptize because it's the sign and seal of the new covenant. What's, what's wrong with this approach? Where does this not quite fit? Well, the problem with it is, is the sign and seal in the new, of the New Covenant in the New Testament is only ever mentioned as the Holy Spirit. And so Ephesians 1 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the hot promised Holy Spirit. We are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then Acts 2, or I mean, sorry, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 1 kind of ties that sealing to another concept. And, and who also put his seal on us and gave us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 
So the spirit is the seal. He's also the guarantee. And then in, uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So guarantee, seal, that's the, the idea. Uh, one more. I, I know I'm listing a lot. Um, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it, to the praise of the glory. So if you ask the question, if you put, a, put aside for a moment the question of baptism, just forget that even exists, and you go to the New Testament, you say, what is the seal of the new covenant? What is the sign and seal of the new covenant? I think the answer you're going to come away with is, it is the Holy Spirit. And we've shown that that is not tied to baptism. The Holy Spirit is not dependent on baptism to come to somebody. So I think the sign and seal has, has some weaknesses to it. What about Colossians 2? That, that explicitly says baptism and uh, circumcision together. Here's what's wrong with the Colossians 2. The circumcision that's described is this. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh. The circumcision that Paul ties to baptism is a circumcision made without hands, not old covenant circumcision. It is made without hands. It is the putting off of the body of flesh. I did an exegetical paper in seminary, so I could nerd out on this pretty hard. But let me just say, the idea of putting off the body of flesh is not Jesus being crucified. It is the idea of our sinful nature being taken away from us by this circumcision that's made without hands. Now, how does that compare to Old Covenant circumcision? Well, Paul uses the similar terms in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So he's talking about the Jews complaining about the Gentiles, and he says they're called the circumcision, but that circumcision is made with hands, and it's made in the flesh. But to Colossians, he says, we're circumcised without hands by the putting off of the flesh. And then he says, having been baptized. So what I think is going on there is Paul does, in a way, tie baptism to circumcision. But it's a circumcision of Christ. It is Christian circumcision. It is that renewal of our heart, the putting off of the body of flesh. It's regeneration. So the spirit, again, is what's tied to this. That's what I think is going on there. So what about um, the idea of the promise from Acts chapter 2? The promise is to you and to your children. Um, isn't that like circumcision? You, you baptize, because what Paul did, or Peter didn't have to explain to them, look, we're going to baptize you, but not your kids. And so, you know, don't worry about, well, let me explain this to you. I know it was like that in the old covenant. It's not like that now. And he didn't have to explain all that. He just said, the promise is to you and your children. So what's going on there? Well, if you start tracing the question of what the promise is backwards, if you move backwards from Peter's statement through Luke's writings, you get to the end of Luke chapter, or the Luke, the book, the book of uh, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24, and what Jesus says at the end of Luke chapter 24, or at cha- Luke chapter 24, is, "Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high." So before Jesus ascends, at the end of Luke, he says, I am going to send the promise of my Father. That's what's going to come. I'm going to send the promise. You stay in Jerusalem. You'll be clothed with power. Three things that he tells them at the end of Luke. 
move to Acts chapter 1 because Luke is part, is part A, Acts is part B of Luke's writing. Luke chapter 1, Jesus is speaking again, and he says, And while, they, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Sound familiar? Stay in the city. But wait for the promise of the Father. I am sending the promise of the Father. Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the promise of the Father will come on them in Jerusalem, and it will come with power, and it will be the Holy Spirit. So now move ahead to Acts chapter 2. They're together praying in an upper room, and the the house fills with the sound of a rushing wind, and it's shaken. And, and as they're trembling, and they're going, what is going on? Tongues of fire separate and come down and land on the, apostles, the disciples as they're together praying. And it's the arrival of the Holy Spirit, and they all burst out into the streets, and they're preaching the gospel. And people hear them preaching in all these different languages. And the amazing thing is one of the, exam- one of the excuses is they're drunk. I have heard drunk people. I have heard drunk people speak in different languages. It's not a known language. It's babbling nonsense. So this is not an explanation that they're so drunk they speak in my language. It, it's a bad excuse. But Peter explains it to them. And here's how he explains it to them. This is in uh, verse 33. Talking about Jesus. He says, Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He's going to send the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Peter's answer is, this is the promise of the Father. This is what Jesus said he was going to pour out. This is it. So now when you get to Acts 2, 38 and 39, when Peter mentions the promise again, what is that promise? It's the promise of the Holy Spirit. He says, "Um, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you. Very clear right there. Those two go together. Now, what happens next is interesting. You will receive the promise for the promises for you and for your children and for all those who are far off. Now, the promises for them, did everybody in that crowd get saved and baptized that day? 3,000 did. That's not a bad day. If we had an evangelistic event where 3,000 got saved, I would be ecstatic. But it wasn't everybody. Was it all of their children, the people who weren't there with them, their, their, their extended family who wasn't there with them, were they all saved? Tragically, the book of Acts shows, no, many of the Jews did not get saved. It, so it was some of them, some of their children. Then it says those who are far off. Now, I think when Peter said that, I don't think he understood the full meaning of it. I think he thought, you know, the Jews who are scattered throughout the uh, diaspora, throughout the, the uh, Roman Empire, it wasn't what that meant. And the reason I say this is because when he gets to Cornelius, God has to take pretty extraordinary steps to convince him, go preach the gospel to a Gentile. So I think he's thinking other Jews, but the reality of that is it's all those who are far off, and the rest of the book of Acts shows that. Paul goes to those who are far off, far off from the covenant community, far off from God, far off geographically. And so not all of those believe, do they? When you look through Acts, you see Paul go into perfectly good synagogues and ruin them preaches the gospel, some people believe, some people don't, Jews and Gentiles, it gets all messed up. So was Peter wrong when he said this promise is to you and to your children and to all those who are far off? Because not everybody believed, not everybody received the promise of the Holy Spirit. Well, no, because he qualifies it at the end. It's for you, your children, all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. 
So when the Lord calls someone to himself, that promise is for them. The promise of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit is for them. So that's why I think that, that answer of the, the um, sign and seal of the new covenant doesn't quite fit. It doesn't capture all of the scriptures. It doesn't grab them all together. Um, in seminary, I had a professor who I profoundly disagreed with on many theological issues. And I learned some of my best lessons from him. And one of the lessons he said was, don't ever say the clear scriptures interpret the difficult ones. He said, I'm an Arminian. I believe that we have a decision. We decide to be saved. So the verses that are difficult for me, if you're a Calvinist, they're clear for you. So if you only interpret in, in, in accordance with what you think you understand, you're only going to interpret it that way. So I like that. The other thing he said is, you don't just say, well, I'm going to include this, but I don't understand that, so I'm not going to include it. We have to somehow get our arms around all of Scripture. So that's what I mean with these two, these two takes, these two approaches, is I don't think they're getting their arms around all of the scriptural message. Now, the last one I want to mention before I go to, well, what is baptism, smart guy, is to say, there, 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 you will hear this often in evangelicalism, baptism is a public profession of faith. It, it is a way that you public, publicly profess that you believe in Jesus. It's not bad. It, it's, not, it's not entirely wrong, but I don't think it gets its arms around all of the scriptures. And so where do they get the idea that this is a public profession? Um, one of them is, Acts, or is Romans chapter 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So when you have a public um, uh, baptism and you, you ask the baptismal questions, do you renounce Satan and his works, do you uh, turn your life over to Jesus, those kind of questions, that's a public statement of your faith. Um, the other way, place that, that you'll see appealed to is uh, Romans 6. Do you not know that all of you who have been baptized were baptized into Jesus' death? You were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, you too might walk in newness of life. So baptism is, is identifying with Jesus' death. It's a way for you to preach the gospel just by being baptized. Now, what I want to say about that, what's wrong with that is not a lot. <laughs> I don't think that's a bad approach. I don't think this is, this is an errant way. I just don't think it's sufficient. I don't think it gets all of it because, for example, um, when Cornelius was baptized, it was at his house. Now, it, to be fair, this, this could actually argue for the public profession of faith thing because it says in uh, verse 24 that Cornelius had called together his relatives and his close friends. So it was a big group of people. But who was baptized was everybody that was there. It wasn't like Peter did a baptism and then those people heard. So it's, it doesn't quite fit. The other one is the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Philip has gone to Samaria. He's preached the gospel. The Holy Spirit transports him somehow to a desert and says, go approach that chariot. And there's a eunuch from Ethiopia who is a treasurer. He's gone to Jerusalem. He, he's bought a scroll and he's reading in there Isaiah 53. And so as... Philip comes up next to him, he hears him, and he says, do you understand what that means? He goes, how can I understand it? Is it him? Or is it, what's going on? Let me explain that to you, brother. And so he gets in the chariot with him, and he explains what Isaiah 53 is. It's Jesus Christ. And so the Ethiopian eunuch's response is, look, here's much water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? And so they go down into the water, and Philip baptizes him. There is not another soul mentioned in that story, not another person. Now, people say, yeah, but he had to have an entourage. I mean, he's an important person. Yeah, he may be. Two or three other people, maybe four. 
but nobody's mentioned. So I don't think that pictures baptism as this, this great, huge public profession of faith. Um, and then the last one I want to mention is the Ethiopian jailer. So Paul and Silas are arrested in Ethiopia for, or Ethiopia, <laughs> I knew I was going to do that, in Ephesus. Uh, they're arrested in Ephesus for causing a stir, and they're thrown in jail. Well, word gets out that they're Roman citizens. You can't do this to them. They've beaten them. They've thrown them in jail. You do that to a Roman citizen, you're in big trouble. Even worse, while they're in the jail at midnight praying, the Holy Spirit shakes the place. There's an earthquake, and all the doors pop open, and all the chains fall off. Because earthquakes do that, right? Chains fall off people. Yeah, this is something really super spiritual, super supernatural that happens to him. And so the jailer rushes in, and he's terrified. The, the prisoners escaped. I've arrested. I've, I've mistreated Roman citizens. I am toast. And so what happens is they say, no, no, we're here. It's okay. And they bring him out, and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all those in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his, all his family. At night, in the middle of the night, his household. Just not a public declaration of faith. It was a very private matter. So I, I, as I said, I don't think that, that that approach is necessarily wrong. I just think it doesn't get its arms around everything that the New Testament has to say about baptism. So now I have to step up to the plate. So then, what is baptism? Well, when you look through, well, first of all, let me just say what, what baptism is not. John's baptism, John the Baptist, that was not Christian baptism. That was a precursor. That was the end of what was then Jewish baptism. So if a Gentile was going to convert to Judaism, they had to, part of their, their ritual of, of uh, being initiated into the covenant community was baptism. They had to be washed because everybody knows that the Gentiles are dirty. So you gotta have, you gotta clean them off, you gotta wash them. And then they had to go through certain rites and be circumcised and then they would be part of the community. So what's really startling is John the Baptist shows up and he tells Jews, you have to be baptized. Wait, we're already clean. No, you're not. This is a baptism of repentance. And so how do you know that this isn't Christian baptism? Because in Acts chapter 19, Paul passed through the inland. Remember those, those guys he, he met that said, uh, we haven't heard there is a Holy Spirit? He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? And they said, no, we haven't even heard there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? How were you baptized then? And they said, John's baptism. Paul's response is not, well, then you should be good. Let me just lay hands on you and we'll get this over with. Here's what he says. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So whatever John's baptism was, it was not Christian baptism. And I would say that the biggest indicator that it's not Christian baptism is before Jesus, baptism wasn't done in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When Jesus came, he revealed himself to be the Son of God. And he revealed that the Holy Spirit as a person is at work in these things. And so then he announces, when you baptize in my name, you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's Christian baptism. That's a requirement for Christian baptism. So then what is Christian baptism? 
I think a good place to start is let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The issue that Paul is dealing with there in verses 10 through 17 is this idea of different associations. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. And then he says, no, look, you weren't baptized in my name. And I didn't baptize that many people. As a matter of fact, I, I came to preach the gospel, not to baptize. So his point is, don't appeal to your baptism to say that's who I belong to. Why? Because baptism is a matter of identity. It identifies us with Christ. And so that's, I think, a good starting place. It's a good point to start and asking the question, what is baptism? So very frequently, when you look through the New Testament, if you do a word study on baptism, you'll see baptized into. So you're not baptized as some different kind of thing. You're baptized into something. So, for example, we read just now, what were you baptized into? Into John's baptism, into a baptism of repentance, anticipating the one who would come. Um, in uh, Romans 6, you are baptized into Jesus' death. You're an, identified with Jesus' death. We'll see in, a, in months, probably, 1 Corinthians 12, we're baptized into the body. So we're baptized into the church. We become part of the church. Um, in 1 Corinthians 10, which we'll see in a couple of months, they were baptized into Moses as they went through the Red Sea. So baptism, whatever it is, whatever it's going on there, it's moving you into somebody else. It's identifying with something else. Israel didn't merge into Moses' body. They, they were identified with, it was a connection with. So in Galatians 3.27, it says you were baptized into Christ. So if I'm, if I'm reading this right, we are baptized into Christ. We're, our new identity is we are now identified with Christ. And that's how it talks about that. That's how it says that. So then why aren't the baptismal regeneration folks right? If we're baptized into Christ, if we're baptized into the church, then why is it that that baptism doesn't do that? Isn't that what the Bible says? Tim, read your scriptures. It's clear. Well... You read your scriptures, whoever you are, imaginary interlocutor. The Bible actually says a lot more about how we get into Christ, how are we included in Christ, than just be, you were baptized into him. For example, 1 Corinthians 1.30, which we'll probably see next week, because God chose the lowly and despised things of the world, we're in Christ. He chose us because we're lowly and despised, me too, and therefore we're in Christ because God chose us. In uh, chapter 4, verse 4, uh, 15, because of the gospel, Paul says that he became the spiritual father of the Corinthians. And he didn't say, I, you were baptized into me, and so now I'm your spiritual father. It's because you're in Christ, because I'm in Christ. That's how I became your spiritual father. They, they came to be in Christ because of the gospel, because they believed. Ephesians 3, 6, we become partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. So this promise that God has made to us, it's in Christ. We partake in that because of the gospel, because we heard and believed. And then Hebrews 3, actually there's a big chunk in there, big, but specifically verse 14. What the author of Hebrews says is, don't harden your heart. It says, we come to share in Christ. We're in Christ when we hear his voice and we don't harden our hearts. So how do we come to be in Christ? How do we come to be identified with Christ? Is by hearing the gospel and believing, not just by being baptized. But baptism then is part of that identification. It's kind of a next step in that. It, it's what's necessary in the next part. It doesn't place us in Christ, but it does show the reality of it. 
So this is why baptism is the initial part of discipleship, right? In, in Matthew 28, Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. Well, Jesus, how do I make disciples? What does that look like? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. First step in making a disciple. Teaching them to, all, uh, to observe all that I've commanded you. You baptize them and you teach them. That's how you do that. So that's why baptism is that initial step. Is it's, it's, taking, it's saying you have heard the gospel, you have believed. Baptism now is externalizing that belief and putting it in a, in a physical form and showing you what that belief looks like. So that's why we're baptized into the church. 1 Corinthians 12 again, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or frees, all free. All were made to drink of one spirit. So we are baptized into one body. Why? Because we are, we are baptized into Christ. The church is his body. And so if, you're baptized, or if you believe and you're placed in Christ and you're baptized and that shows you're placed in Christ, then you're part of the body. And there's one body. And so you're part of the church. That's just how that works. Baptism then is that physical representation of the spiritual reality of being in the position of being in Christ. It's an enactment, of, a physical enactment of it. Kind of like communion, every, every first Sunday of the month when we celebrate communion, I, I always say this is a physical presentation of the gospel. You're enacting it. You're, you're eating his body. You're drinking his blood. That's coming into you. You do that until he returns. You proclaim the gospel until he returns. Baptism is the same thing. Baptism is saying, I have heard, I believe, I have been washed, I've been included in Jesus, and now I'm going to be baptized. And it is a physical preaching of the gospel. You're baptized into his death. You're raised through faith. It's an enactment of the gospel in a way you just can't escape. And it's different because we only do it once. We don't baptize you every Sunday. But when you're baptized, that's what that is. That's a, an enactment of the, re, the spiritual reality which you can't see, which you can't touch. It is enacted in dunking somebody into water. That, that's what it looks like. That's what it works like. So if this is the initial part of discipleship, then you can kind of see how the people who believe in baptismal regeneration kind of get there. Because if, if baptism is an expression of the spiritual reality that's happened in you, then they're seeing baptism and regeneration and the arrival of the Holy Spirit and all that coming together. They just put baptism before it. And I'm saying baptism is an expression of it. It's not the initiator. But you can kind of see how they get there. There's, that's why those scriptures sounded pretty, pretty convincing to me. What about the idea that, uh, um, that baptism is the sign and seal of the new covenant? Well, it kind of is. It's, it's representing it because when you're in the new covenant, you're in Christ. You're blessed with regeneration and faith and, and sanctification and all these wonderful things, and you're baptized into the church in that way. And so then when you get physically baptized, that's an expression of what that is. So it's not that far from saying that it is the, the sign of the covenant. It isn't the sign, but it's really close. So I think it's, it's not too far off. What about folks who say, well, it's a public profession of faith? Well, it is. It's not, it's, the problem is it's not just a profession of faith. There's much more going on. It is an expression of that, that spiritual reality. And so these ideas are close, but they, I think they reverse the, the, the reality of it. The, the spiritual happens first, and then it's expressed in a physical, tangible, touchable, watchable way, which we can say that's what happened.
They were washed clean of their sins because they believed in Jesus, because they believed the gospel. They were given the Holy Spirit, not because they got dunked in water, but because that's what faith in Christ does. Is it, He seals the promises to you and to your children and to all those who are far off. And so you receive the Holy Spirit, and this is an expression of what it looks like. And, and look at they have faith. They trusted Jesus enough to go be baptized. It is an expression of faith. It just isn't the whole fullness of it. So let's go back to, to uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and the problem Paul's facing. Paul says, look, you guys are divided. You're arguing about who you will line up under. Are you under Paul? Are you under uh, Apollos? Are you under Cephas? Who are you lined up with? And he's like, you guys forget all of that. Remember your baptism. You were baptized into me. You were baptized into Christ. You were baptized into his church. You were baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's the unity you have. So this is why he can be so frustrated that they're arguing and they're battling and they're bitter to each other is you've got to remember, remember I said last week, you've got to remember your org chart. Who are you lined up under? We've been baptized into Christ. We've been, we've been saved through the gospel, brought into Christ. So like it or not, we have unity. You are my brothers and sisters in Christ, including the ones I don't like, which fortunately aren't here. We don't have anybody like that. But that's the source of our unity. Do you see why Paul would bring up baptism? Why he would, and because where he's going to go in 1 Corinthians, he's then going to go to preaching Christ. He's not going to go back to the baptism and say, that's what happened. So it happened because you believe the gospel. The way it was expressed was because you were baptized. That's how you should see it. So remember your baptism. That's, I think that's where he goes with this. It is great news. Remember when you were baptized. Think about that. What did that picture, what did that express to you? What did that say about you? You've received the Holy Spirit. You have been sealed in the Holy Spirit, and you were baptized. You, you put your faith, you put your hope in Jesus Christ. He is your only hope in this life and the next. He's the only way that your sins are forgiven, and you were baptized. You were sinful. You were stained by sin. Um, uh, crimson's, uh, it was a crimson stain, and Jesus washed it right as snow. And so now you go and you be washed. That's the source of our hope. That's the source of our unity. That's what it's about. So what is baptism? It is so much more than just putting water on somebody. It is a statement. It is an expression. It is a hope. It is a source of unity. It is the place that we come together. Let's pray. Lord, you taught us to, t to baptize people as they become disciples in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I think the Trinitarian formula speaks so much to this, because the reason that we can have community, the reason that community is real, it's not false, it's not a, a, a fake feeling that we just think we have, is because you are community. The Father and the Son have loved each other from eternity. The Holy Spirit has delighted in the love between the Father and the Son from all eternity. You have always had communion with each other. You have always existed in this loving relationship. And when you created the world, you said you'd make us like you. And so we have genuine, real relationship. It's shattered, it's broken, but Lord, it's healed in you. And so the Trinitarian formula in our baptism, that should be the first flag that says this is a unifying uh, ordinance. This is a unifying sacrament. This is what we all should be unified in, even when we disagree about how to do it and who gets done and, and those kind of questions, Lord, 
we do have a common place. We are in Christ, and we see that practice in our baptism. Help us to remain unified. Help us to be experience unity. Lord, would you spread unity through your evangelical church, people that we align with most closely throughout the entire Antelope Valley, and I pray that through that unity, through that sense of love for each other, people would know you're, we're your disciples, and Lord, you might draw many to yourself. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.